This is Safe Space Radio, the show about the subjects we would struggle with less if we talked about them more. This season, we're revisiting some of our best shows from the past eight years. Today's interview from 2009 is with childbirth educator Leah Darragon, talking about postpartum depression and anxiety. Leah is the co-founder and educator at Birth Roots, a resource center in Maine for families who are expecting or have recently had a child. At the time of this interview, Leah's first child was five months old, so she was technically postpartum herself. And you'll find that she's speaking not so much as an expert or a detached observer, but as someone who's really struggling, feeling humbled and scared by how little her expertise is able to protect her, and feeling that she, of all people, should know how to cope which of course makes her insight on being a new mother even more valuable and trustworthy. Before we air the interview, I want to acknowledge something that's true for pretty much every show I've ever done, that I often have fears about opening up a subject to talk about, even though I'm utterly convinced of the value of doing so. I worry that my questions might be too intrusive, that there are subjects so painful I should avoid them. In this conversation in particular, I was afraid of inadvertently making her feel judged for some of the things she had to do as a mom. There is currently so much judgment in our culture about mothers, what kind of birth they had, whether they breastfeed, whether they had an epidural, etc. It's a minefield. When I became a mother, I felt like every decision was so scrutinized and that others felt at liberty to comment or question me. I didn't want my questions to play into that. It always takes a leap of faith for me to trust that the risk of bringing things up is worth it, because the alternative of leaving her alone with feelings of shame and struggle would actually be worse. Here's my conversation with Leah Darragon. Welcome to Safe Space, Leah. Thank you. So glad you're here. So to start out with, I wanted to ask you if you could tell us a little bit about your own personal story with your postpartum time. Sure. Um, Well, it's important to know that I felt really prepared, that I, for almost a decade, have been a doula, so I've been to more than 100 births myself, and I teach prenatal and postpartum classes, so I went into it humble, but feeling pretty ready, and it was a very wanted pregnancy. Um, I've been waiting for the right time in my life to plan this and do it right, and so um, it really of course caught me by surprise I had a very wonderful birth I have it was not in any way troubling or traumatic and then the hard part started Mm -hmm. and I knew that part would be hard I felt prepared for it to be hard right Um, but we specifically had a difficulty with breastfeeding that I hadn't planned on where uh, because his latch was ineffective I had to pump and I, I didn't really understand that newborns breastfeed very differently than older babies in the sense that it takes them longer and they do it more frequently. And mm-hmm. so to have a breastfeeding challenge meant to breastfeed every two hours, and it took an hour, plus I had to pump, plus he had to be bottle-fed and then sterilizing equipment. And so I I was latched into this roller coaster ride that I couldn't get off of that was 24 hours a day. So every two hours through the night you were breastfeeding? For the first couple of weeks. That was um, exhausting. Yeah. I imagine that. And I knew I would be tired. Like all of the facts of the matter, I was prepared for or knew or expected at least. But I didn't know what the reality of that kind of sleep deprivation was or could do. I didn't understand my vulnerability during that first month or two 
mm-hmm. after a baby is born to things, especially when things aren't perfect, and rarely are they perfect. Right. Um, and so sleep disturbance or disrupted sleep turned into insomnia. I had no idea that if your sleep pattern and what your brain needs to do with sleep gets so profoundly disrupted that then you could not. I, I went several several 24-hour cycles without any sleep. and um, Desperate. Yeah. Mm. So desperate that after having given birth without asking for medications, I was ready to ask for medications to sleep. I was that desperate. To, I knew... I knew it was so not okay to be missing that much sleep and starting to feel so beyond something I could cope with or know what to do next about. Right. So that puts it in perspective. So you're saying with the pain of childbirth, being able to cope with that level of desperation without begging for medicine, this sleep deprivation was even more desperate than that. Significantly more desperate. Yeah, that gets my attention. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) That's very desperate. So you're saying you kind of crossed a threshold where you couldn't sleep because of everything you were trying to do for your child, and then once you could sleep, you were unable to sleep. Right. People recognized that I needed help. I needed to get some sleep. So people were coming and spending the night and, you know, willing to do night feedings, and I still wasn't sleeping. I was laying in bed all night not sleeping. Yes. Um, And it, it just... Was the, it turned into something where I was starting to have thoughts that didn't make sense to me anymore, and then I was troubled by the fact that my thoughts didn't make sense, so it was just spiraling out of control. Mm-hmm. When you say that thoughts that didn't make sense to you, like what do you mean? Um, oh, like no point in going to sleep. <laughs> because it's so useless. Yeah. Right. Um, or just that... Um, you, d- you were giving up on it as really a, a real option for you. Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh, I, I became scared to go to sleep or to try because if I failed at going to sleep, I didn't want to try to go to sleep anymore because if I couldn't, uh-huh. then I started feeling really crazy, like I was trapped in a box and I would hit one corner so I'd move over to the side and hit another corner and move a little. And I just I would lay in bed feeling like I was just walking around these four mm. and I didn't want that experience anymore, so I didn't want to go to bed. Right, so the 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 experience of desperately trying to fall asleep and being unable to was so awful yes that you would rather avoid that than actually have the chance of getting sleep it was that and, awful and and the other thing is is if i got a little bit of sleep like one or two hours mm-hmm. i felt worse afterwards if i just stayed awake i, I was mm-hmm. just sort of like operating on adrenaline and just going and going and going and and i had some funny beliefs about well as a mother i've just got to figure this out and make it work no matter what it takes and that sort of was my definition of what a mother does is just figures it out no matter what it takes and so I was like oh I'm just not going to go to sleep it's just too hard to go down for an hour or two and come back up it was physically painful to come back out of one or two hours of oh, sleep yes, I'm sure <laughs> <laughs> and so this lasts for a while a couple of weeks yeah. at that level of intensity yeah and at that point I mean it sounds like in there, it started to get, the anxiety was already really present. Like, I won't be able to sleep. I'm so desperate. I can't sleep. I'm so scared. I won't be able to sleep. Is that accurate? Yeah. Um, my sister-in-law was quite a savior for me during this time. And she asked me to give her a metaphor of what I was going through, which I thought was a great question. Mm-hmm. And the first thought that came to my mind was I once learned that a hummingbird, if it's trapped indoors, it will try and try and try to get out. But if it just can't get outdoors and, and be free, it'll die. It'll just die. And I was mm. like, I feel like there's a hummingbird in my head that can't get out. And 
there's only so much time left before that hummingbird's going to die. And then I started dreaming about that hummingbird. Oh, <laughs> right. But that's a real, so it was like survival. You were fr- so frantic inside. You thought your very survival was actually at stake. I really did. And that's another piece about sleep deprivation that I never knew before, even as prepared as I thought I was to handle birth, to handle postpartum, was um, I had lost so much sleep that I was convinced that I was dying of lack of sleep. I, yeah. I really believed I was dying of lack of sleep. And so through it becoming identified as one of the faces of postpartum depression is what I was actually experiencing Several times people asked me, do you feel like killing yourself? And I said, no, I am dying. And there, and it was a big difference in my mind between I want to do something that will cause me to get free of this pain. That mm-hmm. wasn't coming to my mind. Mm-hmm. It was, you're, you're looking at a dying person. I'm dying of lack of I'm sleep. I'm already dying. Yeah. I don't need to kill myself. <laughs> I'm already dying. Right. right. Yeah. And, and also that you were running out of time. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to ask you more about breastfeeding because I know as someone who's taught breastfeeding classes. Yeah. Uh, and supports women in doing that. Um, tell me a little bit about your experience with the difficulty of that and how that played into how desperate you felt. Our specific trouble, and people run into different kinds of things around breastfeeding, was that his oral motor coordination, basically his latch, his ability to empty my breasts of the milk, um, was immature or he would fatigue before his belly was full mm. enough to gain weight or my breasts had been emptied enough to then refill and that's what keeps a milk supply. Yeah. So once I understood that unless I could empty my breasts, I would lose my milk supply, the anxiety, just the idea I must breastfeed and pump, breastfeed and pump at every feeding in order to not lose my milk supply, it just became this, I'm going to lose, I'm going to, once that milk supply is gone, I've lost breastfeeding forever, and now I won't be a breastfeeding mom, and how will I live with myself as a not breastfeeding mom? It, it just was spiraling and spiraling, and to have that thought once an hour would would be intense, but it was, you know, it was just a loop. It's all I could think of was, I've got to do anything, um, mm-hmm. even if it means staying up all night again. Even if it means missing weeks and weeks of sleep, I've just got to mm-hmm. breastfeed and pump and bottle feed and breastfeed. And so um, we did succeed. We we succeeded with breastfeeding. But that whole circular thinking and, and not being able to, whether it was that or something else that maybe somebody else would get into a loop of circular thinking about, to not be able to stop thinking about something. Yes. There's no exit point. No, there yeah. isn't. And so when you say, I mean, I know how many women you've taught to breastfeed and all the encouragement that you've given, but when you say, you know, how could I live with myself as yeah. a non-breastfeeding mom and knowing that many women have su- have suffered that fate and have yeah. berated themselves terribly for it or yeah. felt berated by others for it. Tell me more about that. Did you feel like you wouldn't be able to forgive yourself mm-hmm. or that it would it deprive Yeah, it was more about my relationship with my son. I think that if for someone else it isn't the highest priority for them, because many people said, you know, when it got to the point where it was clear there was this sort of domino effect going on, they said, wouldn't it be better to have a calm mom who was bottle Mm -hmm. feeding? And I said, yeah, if the bottle feeding would give me that peace, yes. But Mm -hmm. it wasn't that simple. I felt like I needed my son to have a breastfeeding, at least for, you know, he, the breastfeeding difficulty started right 
right. you know, first week of life. I mean, he hadn't had several months of breastfeeding and colostrum and, and all that. I, I needed it to work for some amount of time. You know, the whole time, it was about three months where both the postpartum anxiety, depression, um, and the breastfeeding challenges were sort of hand in hand. I didn't know what the outcome would be. Maybe I was going to have to give up breastfeeding, and I had to spend that entire three months just wrapping my mind around this wasn't going to be what I thought it was going to be. I was going to be um, a mom who wasn't able to breastfeed because some people can't for a variety of different reasons, and was I going to have to wrap my mind around that? Right. It was such a deep value for you. It would have been a profound loss. Yeah. Yeah, I can understand that. I want to ask you now about how we identify people who have postpartum depression and how we don't. And at what point in all this did it become clear to you, oh, this is depression. I I actually have postpartum depression. Tell me about that process. Um, So it was clear to me and everyone else that I was going through a hard time, that I wasn't, that I had had a nice, easy birth, but I was not having a nice, easy postpartum period. Mm -hmm. And I, I didn't know what the difference between a really hard time and I've crossed a line. I need to get some help beyond my internal resources or even just my family resources. Um, and again, my sister in law was kind of did an intervention and said, you seem like you're crossing a line. And on that very day, several things had happened. One was I told my husband, I'm not in charge anymore. You're in charge. Like, I just felt like I couldn't make one more decision. I had been making decisions left and right, left and right. I just felt like a gladiator with decisions coming at me. I was like, I want you to make decisions. Is it time to pump? I don't know. Like, I just, somebody else Right, decide. take charge yeah. of me. Yeah. And I had this image in my mind. Um, all, almost all of us can remember when the Twin Towers fell to the ground. Um, yes. 9-11. Mm-hmm. Inside my brain, these towers were like I just felt like my some infrastructure inside of me was doing that same thing, you know, just like collapsing mm. like a building. And I didn't know how to tell anybody that on that day, but I, you know, I had someone in there close enough with me who could see that 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 there was something in my eyes that looked different. Mm-hmm. Um, and when it's like the fight had gone out of you, somehow. yeah. So she recommended that we call the midwives, and they they knew they had questions to ask me. And um, one thing they asked was, "Are you having desires like wanting to bang your head against a wall?" And I said, "How do you know that's how I feel? How do you know I want to bang my head against a wall?" Uh-huh. Um, and she said, "Yeah, that's that's you know, moms struggle, but that mm-hmm. desire is crossing a line." To, mm-hmm. I remember telling someone, how do I know what the difference is between I feel like I can't take care of my baby and I'm not taking care of my baby? What's the difference between those two things? Yeah, and were you afraid that you weren't? I knew I was changing his diapers. I knew I was putting clean clothes on him and he was getting nutrients. But I didn't have any sense that I was his mother doing the thing that only mothers can do for their children. Mm -hmm. Um, I didn't feel any more important or significant than a caregiver to my child. Mm-hmm. So you were missing the feeling of that bond. Yeah. Yeah. I want to I want to turn to that now then. Um, you know, we talk we hear about bonding and we have this fantasy that as your baby is put into your arms after birth is going to be this flood of love that's like nothing else and um, I think so many people don't feel that or it comes much later and tell me about your experience with how all of this affected your connection with your child? Well, 
I'm familiar enough with people's experiences around birth that some women experience love at first sight and other women it takes weeks or longer yeah. to have that sense. And I just happened to not have love at first sight. When I looked at my baby after he was born, I thought, are you sure this is my baby? Oh. I mean, he was still attached to me by the umbilical cord and I had a feeling. Chances were good. <laughs> <laughs> I just didn't have an immediacy of, yes, that is my baby. And, mm. um, and then, you know, that same day, immediately breastfeeding didn't come it didn't just fall into place naturally there was just the latch was right. challenging right from the first day and so I think the reason I may have not felt that immediate sense was he looked very different than I thought he would look and yeah um and in fact he didn't really look like either my husband or I that on that day he does now but he didn't that day and so I was a little bit struggling with that and then when breastfeeding wasn't just so easy it sort of you know widened that crevice a little further and so um, it really wasn't until breastfeeding worked out that I could feel like that, yes, I must be his mother. There was, mm-hmm. And that's why people kept saying, you know, like, oh, maybe it is time for you to stop focusing so hard on the breastfeeding. You're being stubborn. You need to, and I was like, mm, this for me personally, maybe it's not for everybody, is what makes me feel like his mother. So to yes. give up on that doesn't feel like it's a path to wellness for me. Yeah. And this may, I went through a phase, and maybe many mothers go through this phase, where if he would cry, I didn't have any sense that, oh, let him be with me, and then he'll immediately be soothed. I was like, he he doesn't seem any more soothed by me than right. anyone trying to calm him down. And that was just heart-wrenching to me in, during my difficult yes. times. I wanted, the, I wanted the second he came into my arms for him to just stop crying immediately, and then he would, he would know his mother was holding him, and that wasn't really happening right away. Yes. It happens now, but uh-huh. it wasn't happening at three weeks postpartum. And so I think a lot of things that may be kind of normal things, I was filtering through the sleeplessness and the anxiety around breast. All of this was sort of being filtered, and I thought, oh, here's further evidence that this. That know, what? That further evidence that what? Um, that I must. Um, a mom should just know how to breastfeed their child. They should know how to soothe their child. They should, you know, yes. have these innate knowings of what to do. And I was clumsy and didn't, you know, breastfeeding was challenging for me and I didn't even like it. <laughs> right. So you were like failing the good mom test, as yeah. it were. Yeah. Yes. And all, and all these fronts. Yeah. Yes. And, and a lot of people are visiting at that time. Mm-hmm. So you have a lot of audience for your fumbling. Publicly failing. <laughs> yes. Not just failing, but in full view <laughs> yeah. of others. Yes, who were expecting you to be, you know, the goddess of postpartum since you'd been teaching yeah. so many people about it, which is sort of this whole other thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, that that idea that the child would go to the mother and be magically soothed right from the beginning is a tyranny. Yeah. It is a tyranny. And this idea that a good mother would be totally in love with their child and so enjoying all of it. And I wondered, I wonder how much did you compare yourself to that standard and feel lacking a part of it was how planned and wanted the pregnancy and the baby was and so there was a catch for me of how could I have planned and I mean I had just been meticulous about setting up this pregnancy and my life around being a mom and then had no perspective perspective that my hating of what I was going through was going to be a short-lived thing. I right. thought I had just signed myself up and then was like, 
wait, 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 I changed my mind. This, this isn't right. what I want. And um, w- one of the harder thoughts that I had when I knew I was crossing the line was I would start obsessing on the responsible thing to do would be to give him to someone who could take better care of him than I can. Mm-hmm. And I re- like, I believed my mom, my mind was telling me that and I would believe, yeah, and I would start thinking up people who could take better right. care of him than me. Right. But some little part of my brain was like, Leah, that's that's crazy. You can't mm-hmm. give your baby to somebody else. You you need to figure out how to make this come together mm-hmm. so that you don't feel like you want to give your baby away. Right. One of the questions that's often asked of women who are experiencing postpartum depression is, do you feel like you want to harm your baby? And I was like, no, I want to give him to someone who can take better care of him. I can't take care of him. I'm a wreck, and I don't sleep, and I hallucinate. And <laughs> so He mm-hmm. needs to be with someone who feels joyful around him because I don't feel joyful. I feel miserable. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when you talk about hallucinating, what was your experience of that? Um, well, the nighttime was the hardest. In daylight mm-hmm. hours when people, other people were awake and maybe around and I could cope. But I couldn't really cope in the night when other people were sleeping. And mm-hmm. so I would, late in the afternoon, start getting more and more anxious. And um, if I would doze off, I would startle awake Um I don't know if you call it hallucinating or half between dream state mm-hmm. or whatever, that he was screaming in another room and nobody was tending to him and that I'd slept. That somehow I had missed, I had just irresponsibly been snoozing and napping while my child was, you know. I think dreams like that are very, very common. Yeah. Yeah, and they're and they're horrible. Yeah, and so be, not being able to tell, is he really crying or am I just sort of hearing an echo in my head and having to go look at him every time I didn't know for sure? I see. So it's more, it's not so much necessarily that you were hallucinating as not being sure if you were hallucinating. Yeah. I want to talk to you now about uh, a phenomenon you described to me before as having two voices in your head mm. ab- around some of the key decisions you did end up making. Mm. Um, you've talked to me already about the struggle around do I keep nursing or do I not? And and I know that you really struggled over whether or not to take any medicine to mm-hmm. help with how you were feeling and that you were getting totally contradictory advice from people that right. loved you and that you loved. And tell me a little bit about how that was for you. Um, I do the number, the sheer volume of decisions that new parents have to make. There's nothing that can prepare, you know, who knows what it's going to be. Some people have a difficult pregnancy. Some people have an easy pregnancy. Some people have a really challenging birth. Some people have an easy birth. And so you can't know what kinds of decisions you're going to have to make. And, um, so I had to make two significant decisions. One was what do I do about the fact that my child isn't able at this point to get enough breast milk to make the whole ecology of it work and what do I do about the fact that I've lost so much sleep that I'm now not well and what's the best route to getting well and as someone who typically would take a yoga class or go to acupuncture or take better vitamins or whatever uh, the idea of taking medication I mean I carefully planned out the kind of birth I wanted so as to not expose myself or my baby to medications. And here I was saying, Uncle, this situation is Mm -hmm. beyond what I have the resources to fix by myself. Um, Mm -hmm. So it was clear to me that I needed to take something to sleep because I couldn't sleep when that many days had gone by and I... Yeah. tried with all my best effort, knowing how important it was that I did actually sleep, mm-hmm. and I couldn't 
I knew I needed to take medication to sleep. Yeah. So it sounds like when it finally came down to it, it was in some ways a non-decision. Like it just had to be. Yeah. Yeah. Even though it was against the grain of yes. everything that informed my decisions up until that point, mm-hmm. it was like parenting was asking me to um, exercise the the utmost flexibility with my values, mm-hmm. um, that there's a time and a place. You know, and I had prepared myself for birth, saying that there's a time and a place for a cesarean birth. You know, sometimes you just can't have a vaginal birth, and there's no shame in that because sometimes you just can't. Right. But I didn't say to myself, sometimes in the postpartum, a series of unexpected events means you have to do something that isn't what you would normally do. Mm-hmm. Right. That was a new one. I wanted to ask you about, you know, what unexpected gifts for you there have been. I know that you work with women still, and as you, but as a mom, starting first, I guess, in your personal life, how have you been able to hold this? I know you mentioned to me when we talked in advance that there was a hidden gift for you and all this. Mm. I'd love to hear more about that. I think that any family that may have had to work a little harder to become pregnant. It took a couple of years for us to, um, we had one miscarriage and we didn't just quickly get pregnant. It took time and a little bit of extra effort for us to get pregnant. And I'm older and waited till I was older to start a family. And so I think I brought a level of, you might call it perfectionism, but sort of a long awaited dream come true was happening Mm. and there's always an element of fantasy about what it's going to be like for sure but I think I was putting an extra pressure on myself of okay you know this is this isn't something that just sort of caught you by surprise you've you've put some planning into this you need to do it right as though you (laughs) prepared and um that got blown out of the water the idea that I could craft or engineer my motherhood or my family experience and um, right. beyond a shadow of a doubt, it was just ripped out of my hands that I was going to succeed at having the perfect experience as a mother and as a family. And I had to, I always joke about, like, it's a bitter pill to swallow to yes. myself. I had to swallow a bitter pill and say, sometimes <laughs> it's different than what you think. But I that is the gift because it, it wouldn't have been fun to live with me in my perfectionist <laughs> state. I would have been miserable to my husband and to my child if I mm. was trying so hard to have them live up to my fantasy. And now that I'm not mm-hmm. parenting from a fantasy anymore, I'm parenting from a place of who knows what's going to happen and who knows what kind of decisions we'll make and we'll make the best decision that we can figure out together. It really was a time of my husband and I having to make decisions together that were harder than we'd ever made before and that it wasn't just me because our child was his child too so we had to do a consensus process around do as a breastfeeding mother do I take medications um, right his voice was important there yeah too. it wasn't just up to me mm-hmm. I, and it became very clear to me through that process that this isn't the first or last time that I will want to be extra inclusive of not just my opinion in a parenting decision. Yeah. We're going to have to stop in one minute, Leah. And I want to just ask you, do you feel that this experience has helped you now in working with other women? Do you feel like... Oh, my God. People kept telling me while I was in the middle of it, and I couldn't see the light at the end of the tunnel, that I would be such 
an amazing teacher for having mm -hmm. that personal experience. And I just want to tell them, get out of my face. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't care about being a better teacher, but um, I, I do bring uh, an in-depth, personal understanding to that experience now that makes me unbelievably com more compassionate than I could have been for, that just from reading out of a book. That was my 2009 conversation with childbirth and parenting educator Leah Darragon. When it first aired, it was part of a series of interviews about facing our fears. If you want to hear more of the shows from that series or any of our other past shows about the subjects we hide, visit our website at safespaceradio.com. While you're there, please subscribe to our email list to find out about each week's new show as soon as it's released. Also, leave us a comment. I love hearing from you. My thanks to Gabe Graben for producing the show and to Jim Russell for being our editorial advisor. <laughs>